0: Welcome to both Success and Integrity with Bessie Graham, a podcast dedicated to established business leaders like you, ready to bring more meaning into your life in a way that strengthens rather than threatens the financial stability of your business. I'm your host, Bessie Graham. I've worked with business owners, governments and large funding bodies like the United Nations for over 20 years to bring doing good and making money back together. So let's unpack why you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life. So our focus in the episode today is going to be around seeing what we as business leaders can learn from the places where commercial opportunity and sustainability converge. And so to help us explore that topic, I have a wonderful friend, Noah Beckwith, joining us. Noah is a private equity and investment specialist working across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And so he brings a really genuine global perspective to this conversation, which I think is really important. With advisory mandates with some of the biggest names like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Clinton Foundation, Bank of America, Asian Development Bank, and the foreign affairs departments in both the UK and Australia, NOAA's input has shaped the fund design, structuring, and management of many a portfolio and his extraordinary mind is matched only by what I would I say that, is his wicked sense of humor which I have uh, <laughs> have given you a little heads up Noah and said you know that we'll keep that uh, sense of humor in, in check today now we will we will yes <laughs> Absolutely. so welcome welcome to the podcast
1: <laughs> thank you very much thank you very much for having me
0: it's been far too long we we met I can't actually even remember what year uh, it was, but five, six years ago. Yeah, years ago in in uh, doing mm, a project mm. with the Australian government together. Absolutely, but uh, mm. hopefully we can do another project at some point. But great I to have too. you. Great to Thank have you, you here with us today, and Lovely I'm really looking here. forward to one of the things Noah that I often talk to business leaders about is the need for us to think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. And I'm hoping that in this conversation you can help us really stretch and just look at things from a different perspective, zoom out a bit and see what are those risks, what are those opportunities that business leaders need to be looking at in order to actually have ongoing and sustainable success over time. So, I'm wondering if you could first just give us a bit of an introduction and a whirlwind (laughs) tour of your experience in this place of where business and finance kind of intersect in that opportunity to actually do good and make money?
1: To start to get specific in terms of the convergence between the sustainability side and that word really takes hold, not that it didn't exist, but it really starts to take hold, um, I would say, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, as the urgency of, you know, resource depletion and then environmental matters um, um, comes to the fore, um, the convergence starts to come, I think, in this notion that um, solutions at scale, particularly, we can discuss other size solutions and other strategies, but solutions at scale should, and in in, in the hands of some observers, must be um, pro- profitable and very profitable um if they are going to obtain and continue to grow and indeed solve the, the 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 issues that they are um that they're purporting to solve, but I think importantly what has been mainstreamed is this notion that there is absolutely nothing wrong with and indeed from a commercial and business dna perspective in many cases um if the if the sustainability angle is not embedded into interwoven into the um the growth thesis and the commercial objective, then there's a there's a real problem, or there may be problems down the road. That's certainly where I sit on that spectrum of of of, of um, I would say orthodoxy around this issue.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really uh, important contextual piece to sort of frame that development over a significant period of decades mm, mm. of work that has been going on which I think often in that commercial space or in with businesses, this notion of starting to consider things like ESG and different pressures or compliance requirements that are coming onto them is quite new. And one of the pieces that I'm keen for us to unpack a little bit today is the fact that we can, if we look at the historical aspects around some of these components related to the investment side and the types of due diligence that were done and the results that were achieved, we can learn lessons from that and now get ahead of it in terms of as, as businesses that if we just ignore all of that contextual piece, we, we miss a bunch of learnings. You mentioned an, an interesting piece there which I think I have certainly seen a shift in the last few years around things that have historically been seen by business as an externality, not their problem, they don't need to consider it, are suddenly being seen very directly as the responsibility of a business. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about that and, and maybe give us some examples even of from the investment side, from those appetites you're seeing in different international markets. What are the pieces that now a business cannot see as an externality that they once could?
1: I mean, again, if I can sort of zoom the lens out, and you, you started around, you know, the systemic piece, but 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 um, I think zooming the lens out is important here, in so far as um, framing that question and more broadly, you know, ESG. Yeah. Um, very crudely into two buckets, if you like, so you've you've used words like like compliance and 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 externalities and responses to those externalities, and I think that's one large bucket, which is external pressure from all sorts of sources, in some cases internal um, around behavior, around the nature of inputs that go into outputs, the outcomes, and then the impacts on society, on the environment, et cetera, et cetera and so we'll come back to that to name the second bucket i think the second bucket is really around deliberate um intentional um either business model models or policies within businesses to affect change um and, and i think it is a really critical distinction because you know to be slightly cynical about it so back to bucket one there is a lot of frantic cleaning up, in some cases white walking, green walking et cetera, that is very much a response to external external pressure. Um you know, to some extent understandable, to some extent not exactly a you know a, a bad dynamic by all means. Let's, you know, stop dumping whatever into rivers or or, or reduce our our emissions, et cetera, et cetera. There's a the whole piece which we haven't even touched on about how you analyze that, measure it, report it, and so on. Um, but just to again sort of declare where I am on all of this, um, what I would love to see in addition to that long overdue clearing up piece and reactive business posture to this sort of pressure is a more active piece, which then also, um, to my mind, really splits into three buckets, if I may. I mean, one is, you know, stopping doing certain certain things or withdrawing from certain things. So, you know, what's traditionally known in our sector is do not harm. The other is, if you like cleaning house. Um, so it's if you think of an organism or a cell and all of those cells around it, it's how, you know, you deal with your own organism and cells, so the workers, the conditions and so on and so forth. And then around you the supply chain, society, et cetera. Um, and you know, that's what people crudely may refer to to, you know, we've made certain ESG improvements and so on and so forth. The piece that again I must confess, you know, I'm most interested in are the active um policies either in the sense of what the business is producing or the way in which it's engaging with suppliers or consumers or distributors or or producers bringing in um, uh, actors into those supply and value chains um, in a way that that drives value and i think that's where we are still struggling enormously to enlighten the business community that there is inherent commercial value in pursuing these strategies as opposed to either bucket one of those two, which is the urgent cleanup. So there, I think there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, funnily enough, I was just with a, a financial institution in Geneva in, in, in yesterday, you know, and it was a very sort of anodyne, um, we know this is sort of coming down the pike. We need to look at what we've done in the past and you know what we do about this. You know, it's, it's very very reactive, as opposed to a much more exciting conversation, which is what is our fi- what can our finance do in this realm and how can it it put put pain? Not because we want to be seen to be doing that. There is that thing. fine. Take the take the marketing position around it, but because there's value in it, that's yeah. the critical yeah.
0: Yeah, and I totally agree with you, and that shift is the piece that I am most interested in Mm. business Mm. leaders having, Mm. which in my mind is really the mindset shift. So there's the piece that as you said, a lot of people uh, have been talking about this for a long time, but around the impact measurement and management space, the impact management project, now impact management platform, their ABC model of that, you know, initially avoid harm then how do you benefit stakeholders? How do you contribute to solutions? How do you move up that piece? And mm. like you, I am very much in the camp that I want people to, sure, start with that avoiding harm, <laughs> begin the process. Absolutely. But mm. the opportunities here and certainly the components where I would say you actually can see doing good as a competitive edge that your business has been missing, is to dive into this fully And actually do that work to grapple with your business model. And I think part of what what you're saying is that same piece that if business leaders can start to move beyond the fear and reactionary response to this and instead see that opportunity, there's incredible things that can happen. And there was a piece, so you, uh, I I had a look at a piece that, a report that you wrote, Inclusive Business Financing, um, back in 2018. And in that, you were talking about the shift from, I think it was 2004 when the Fortune of the Bottom of the Pyramid came out. So we're nearly nearly yep, twenty yep. twenty years away from that. But you talked about the fact that that started this process of shifting in our minds the the role of, for want of a better word, the poor and seeing yep, yep, yep. this market opportunity that actually existed there. But you then spoke in that report about. The shift in what I would say is actually a power dynamic shift to say not only is it a market opportunity but if we take this approach that says let's broaden out the stakeholders we're considering here from just a focus on a shareholder to actually looking at our suppliers, our team or employees, the the components related to the communities that we operate in, the customers themselves, if we broaden that out, that piece i think is a really helpful way to start to look at and examine in a different way where are these opportunities you know where where does risk sit and so it is it is both a beautiful thing in terms of shifting a power dynamic but it is i think one of the the pieces that needs to occur in our thinking as business leaders to start to take into account these broader perspectives I wonder. Have you seen, even since you wrote that report, so in the last sort of five years or so, have you seen some shifts and momentum around people starting to to tap into and engage with this broader group of of stakeholders in positive ways?
1: Absolutely, and to be honest, with no criticism intended. I mean, I I, I, I don't know that I would put it in terms of. Um, you know, merrily engaging with this broader group of stakeholders, and I say that in the possible, sorry, in the the following vein. I say that in the vein of, um, sadly, you know, as human beings, it tends to be, you know, the urgency that drives us. And then we look for you know, either sticks or carrots or both. And so if I can give an example, which may seem slightly far afield, but, but, but I think it's quite helpful. And it's sort of mentioned in the, in the, um, in that publication, um, which is Mongolia. So, so, and what I'm going to try to do here is to sort of draw out, you know, how all of these, the environmental, the poverty related, to so the economic and the social, sociocultural and so on, the social, they all converge. So, you know, broad broad, we all have voracious and unsustainable demand for cadmium. Um, you have 80 million animals on land that can only carry 20 million, um, because of that, largely because of our demand. Demand It's destroying the path land, it's accelerating desertification, and you now have three quarters of the population, which used to be largely nomadic, centred and living in, in often horrible conditions, very political conditions, in the capital, Ulaanbaatar. So if we dissect that, if we unpack that, what's actually going on? The conversation that I'm now having is I put together an investment strategy to try to. Address this is, let's take the cashmere companies. Um, you know, in 10 years time, stripping out the human, the environmental, all that side of things, you will not have this fabric anymore. It's just not possible because there's no, there's no pasture land for these animals to eat at the, at the simplest level. If you are interested in changing that, we are giving you an opportunity to invest in a vehicle, which will, and here comes the stakeholders piece which will invest in the producers of cashmere, the manufacturers, the dyers, et cetera, in ways that create much more sustainable relationships with those suppliers, so the herders, not because it is a nice thing to do, and this is a crucial distinction. Um, Yes, it's a nice thing to do, although that sounds terribly condescending, but because unless you strengthen that relationship, unless you start to see them um reliable, dependable wages in return for quality products, and in this case, there's a wonderful convergence because the only way you can increase the quality of the cashmere is by reducing the size of a herd, which, of course, starts to help the pasture and um, regenerate, then, you know, you're not going to have any cashmere. So that, to me, is a wonderful sort of convergence and a sort of, a, you know, the light bulb goes off in their, in their minds. Now, look, if Laura Piana and Prada and whatever want to take the publicity position, in their shops as they're selling a two thousand pound jumper around you know this is the village that we're helping you know i've made peace with that some people find you know whatever we, we shouldn't waste time talking about it but but that's how i think business can be very effectively engaged it is in their interest and, I, and there's a big distinction to be drawn between that and you know much scarier sticks like you know uh, um fossil fuels industry, you can no longer exist. You know, that's a whole other discussion we don't think you want to get into today. But, you know, I recognize that these are areas that are perhaps a little bit less black and white emotive and and, and easier as it were to, um, to perhaps think creatively about.
0: Well, I think too, it takes us back to that aspect of thinking like a system, acting like an entrepreneur. Mm, absolutely,
1: so absolutely. It, it, the,
0: the piece of, and I do see it being connected to this shift in us needing to start to take account for all of the flow on effects of our decisions. So that zooming out a bit and saying, ah, the pieces that maybe over my career, if this was 50 years ago, I could have got away with my business continuing to scale and grow at the site you know at the pace that it is currently without addressing these issues, by zooming out and actually taking a a realistic look at what is going to affect the future sustainability of your organization, you will realize that that longer term vision means you have to start behaving differently now. And as you said, not simply because it's the right thing to do, but because it actually makes commercial sense. And, And this piece to me is where we're going to get the type of change that we need to have happen when that actually sinks in. Because at any point while this stays in the category of a nice to have or just a marketing piece, when push comes to shove, we won't make the right decisions to actually embed these practices and changes because it hasn't actually really got down to the alignment of the core business strategy to these particular areas. So I think-
1: but I think I think in fairness, mm. you, you know, to to any business, it is it is important to point out two things. You know, one is that there's not always such a, you know, beautiful, neat convergence in an ideal world of, of the mongrovia thesis. And secondly, you know, there will come times where um there are, you know, pressures, uh, let's take, you know, the supply chain emergencies or, or, or bottlenecks and things around COVID and so, you know, any business, as in any household, faces sometimes very, very difficult trade-offs between allocation of resources and so on. And I think that, again, you know, track record is important here. Um, You know, companies' relationships with their stakeholders are important there in so far as if difficult decisions need to be made, you know, at certain times – you know, we can't all be perfect all of the time. We rarely are ever, but do you know what I mean? So so that's where I think, you know, the social media piece and the sort of to judgment and the trial by media is, you know, can be uh, – we just have to be aware
0: of that. Yeah, but also, the you know, it does feel like we are at a point where there is starting to be this mix of different drivers all coming at the same time in terms of – we have some of those external pressures that you highlighted before in terms of the, the pieces that are almost the negative sense of ooh, regulatory pressures that we might just react to. But some of those can actually be things that incentivize the right behavior. So, if you then have a Absolutely. company that isn't yet thinking about these things and suddenly you've got changes coming in in the EU, for example, around... You won't actually be able to import if your products contribute to deforestation. It's like, well, if you you now cannot sell in that market, if you haven't addressed these things, you will start to look at your supply chain differently. You will start so that we can incentivize the right behavior. So we're having those types of shifts externally. I'm seeing, and, and I'm sure that you've got far more examples than me, but I'm seeing from an investor perspective, The questions that are being asked and the requirements in a due diligence space that are now not simply for things being considered as an impact investment, but they are just a standard question being asked of organizations, again, are starting to raise questions in a different way and incentivize the right behavior. We have the same shifts occurring with the broader consumer market asking us to not only Answer these big questions, but back it up with the evidence that shows transparency. You know, so the it does feel like we're at a point that is quite different to a few years ago when there was lone voices saying this stuff. Um, so, I mean, what's your your sense of that? Are we at a really critical point?
1: I think we're at a critical point. I think there's a big distinction to be drawn between um, public companies and private companies. Um, and in fact, again, a conversation that I was just having yesterday with the sort of banking community in, in Geneva was around exactly this that, that as a, as a, as a shareholder of, of whatever size, but, you know, let's, let's stick to sort of a minority size, even a significant minority stake. It can be very difficult to feel any direct relationship between these impulses that you might have sort of for and through and on behalf of, um, you know, your participation in that company as a shareholder and, and what actually happens. Um, whereas in the private space, um, you know, private equity, for example, or other forms of private investment, it's very, very different. And I think we still haven't cracked, you know, we have these beautiful phrases like shareholder activism and so on, but unless you happen to be an 80% stake, you know, shareholder in a company, you know, and I can really, you know, crack the whip. I think, I, I think that's really tough. And it so happens that some of the companies that we most need to, um, you know, to move the needle are very, very large public public companies. And depending on what country you're in, of course, that whole policy um, environment around you know, be it subsidies or, or you know, favorable policy, you know, that's where it becomes really, really complicated. And, and to be honest, I don't think we know what to do about that yet. Um, I don't think we know how to deal with that. But systemically, yes, I mean, it feels as though something is slowly shifting, but it, it, I think it is true to say that it does still feel like it's shifting around that, um, no question greater sense of responsibility and awareness that certain behaviors have to stop or, or certain investment activities have to stop, but more in the sense of once I do that, I'll be okay as opposed to, you know, I as a company, you know, the company will be okay, as opposed to where are the value drivers here? And and, and again, if I may, a slight sort of um, distraction. So 22 years ago now, when I was handed this thing, ESB, one of the things we struggled most with were, was explaining and, and, and sort of incentivizing our colleagues on the ground who had a portfolio of investments to say 2 to $10 million in, in small businesses around Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And what I quickly realized was it was only when the commercial light went off that they that they sat up and got interested. And I had no sticks to use in those days other than the fact that maybe an investor might come and do, do an order. And unsurprisingly, they tended to be, you know, the Scandinavian investors and things that are far harder on these issues than we all tend to be or were at the time. But it was, you know, it was when you said, do you realize that this could really drive a very, very different delta, you know, an exit? Or, or this could, could um, seriously impact the company's P&L um, because of savings by actually no longer sourcing this or that or the other that when they suddenly that up. So I still believe, imperfect and messy and ugly as it may be, it's that commercial imperative that generally is the purest in that, you know, in, for want of a better word.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I think part of the piece that I think many of us are, are trying to crack is how better to explain and position that competitive advantage that comes from having the genuine transition—you know, the, the the actual shift towards this being embedded in in the core business. It, the other piece that I just want to pick up on, because you spoke about some of these challenges around, you know, massive organisations where they are publicly listed and there's less of that lever of an individual business leader or owner being able to completely change the, the way that that company is operating. For me, I very much see the, the place that I want to, want to focus and that I think has a lot of uh, potential is that small and medium enterprise space. It's the aspects around family businesses around the world. Because they make up such a massive driver of the economy, such huge numbers. In terms of the actual businesses that are out there, yes, they're not at the size of the, the companies you're, you're talking about. But if we go back to this mindset shift, when someone who actually is running a family owned business or a small or medium enterprise has this transition in the way that they think, they can make a decision differently. They have decision making rights, they have uh, the ability to spend money differently or ask questions in their supply chain. And so, you know, I know, again, in that, in that piece that you wrote in 2018, you had a beautiful phrase where you talked about micro, small and medium enterprises. So, right from the very small up to, to the medium size, being this connective tissue that had the, the ability to reduce things like poverty and inequality. So, I'm guessing that you are like me and kind of see the potential in that space as well as the big end of, of town. Is that? still a, an area that you think could help drive some of this change?
1: Without question, I mean I think I think there are numerous points on this and I think you're spot on. Um, absolutely without question, we can't think about this without addressing the SME piece where there's still I think a lot of thinking to do and I think the development finance community did a very good job and then sort of retracted from it but I hope is now re-entering is you know, these MFMEs in many, many environments, be it, you know, Australia, UK or, or, or Laos, you know, it is simply beyond your means. It's beyond your balance sheet to make all of the changes that that, yeah, that you might otherwise. And I think it's a very salutary lesson to, to, to recall. Again, when I had sort of ESG landed on my plate and I, I did some fascinating um, um, training courses, there's a brilliant man from the International Labour Organization. Who basically said, you know, if I looked at my own organization, he was saying, let alone all of yours, you know, there are a hundred and I can't remember what the number was, but 17 conventions. I can guarantee you that what we're doing right now probably offends several of them. Um, you know, to bring in a little bit of humor, an anecdote, we once had a, um, a, uh, evaluator come into, um, to, uh, um, our fund in East Africa. This is when I was at a, at a place called Warriors Campus. Um, and he went around sort of announcing, this man was from Finland, announcing in a very, you know, lovely, charming Scandinavian way that under ILO conventions, everyone was uh, entitled to housing and all of these things. And of course, the next day of the office was a stampede of thousands of people expecting a house. Um, um, you know, because, because technically, when you look at those conventions, I mean, so, um, you know, I can't think of any company that lives up to that, but, um, but the point being that, um, the scale of change needed as you go down the curve of business size um, as against the resources that are often available you know, is an incredibly, incredibly tough one, let alone when you get to the individual, the smallholder, and so on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering, you've used some great examples from a range of, of different countries. Are there particular regions or, or places that you think are ahead of the curve that we almost should be looking to as signals of, of what change is coming. So when we want to predict a little bit and anticipate change, which countries do you think are ahead in some of these areas?
1: I mean, different countries and regions, um, different areas in which they're ahead. I have never been so sort of blown away by the intersection between. Technology and specifically um, fintech and addressing these issues in is India um, and Sri Lanka to a lesser extent, I suppose, um, Bangladesh. But the way in which technology is being applied, I mean, just to give you a tiny example, one lender that's using heat mapping to help drive customers and they only work in slums towards denser areas where they their kiosk may be able to sell more because there are more people sort of, you know, buying their lunch for one of a better way of describing the meal there or whatever. Um and the cash collection and you know it's very much a cash economy, you know, how they're dealing with cash and collection, getting cash into those people's hands. And I mean just utterly extraordinary and risk assessment and analysis. Latin America to some extent as well on on, on the fintech side. Um, I think on the on the um generally um I would say that Latin America and South Asia are the most advanced in that area to some extent in um in banking and what banking is doing although there i mean huge shout out to East Africa companies some of your listeners might have heard of, of like M-Pesa and so on i mean it, you know revolutionary um ways of thinking about Access to finance, mobile telephony, et cetera, I mean it really, really varies. what I would say though, in terms of the fund management community and the evolution of it and the development of it, and who's most cutting edge there again, I think the awards definitely go to 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 Latin america India um, China curiously is actually this is strictly my, my my opinion quite quite far behind on that front, Southeast Asia's catching up um but, but yeah, those are the real, um, the real areas of innovation. One thing that I also feel very strongly about, which is often a, um, you know, fairly painful message and it doesn't go down very well is, um, is that I think there are so many lessons to be applied, particularly from microfinance and inclusive finance and, and how that relates to agriculture, healthcare, et cetera, to countries, especially like the United States and the emerging markets within the United States, if I could put it that way, deep south Appalachia, um, the, the uh, illegal migrant community and so on, parts of Europe and others. I think that's a very, very painful thing to hear though. Um, well, but know, again, the, the I think it,
0: if we can work through that discomfort, mm, the, mm. the piece that is useful and it's one of the reasons why I'm keen to, to have your kind of global view of some of these things is You use the word innovation and obviously that word gets thrown around a lot by a lot of people who aren't actually being innovative. But in the context that that you were just uh, explaining it, one of the best ways that we can innovate and find genuine opportunities in the business space is to look elsewhere and see what they're doing and go, what could that look like in my particular business or what could that look like in my region? And you've given us some, some really great uh, examples there in a few different areas that are in places that, that, to be honest, often there is an arrogance about where we look for. Absolutely. Lessons, Absolutely. Kind of go, oh, yes. So, you know, what's happening in Europe or what's happening in the US? And, and the I love that the examples you've given and that the innovation that we could actually learn from mm. And that mm.
1: could help us. No, and and just two examples because I think examples help. I was once working on something um, on you know agriculture and agricultural value chains in 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 um, the deep south in, in in the United States and in Appalachia, which the people who might not be aware it's a long sort of mountainous stretch um, in the eastern United States, horribly, horribly poor, has been you know ever since really it was it was settled. Um, and two anecdotes. I mean, one where, you know, people know a little bit about the geography of the U.S., where sort of Kentucky and Tennessee and so on uh, meet a number of states. I think there's a bit of Virginia in there, you know, five and six hours along dreadfully underinvested, depending on the weather, muddy or snowy tracks to get your milk to a collection center. And this is no different to rural Cambodia. And then in the deep south, you know, and, and, and equally, um, you know, worrying if if much more sort of painful example of an African American farmer, um, sixty years old from a farming family, curiously had applied for a loan fifty times as a woman and African American and had never quite managed to get a loan. You know, so, you know, unfortunately these things happen all over the world. Now what's going on in that in in that situation if we dissect it a little bit further? Um Financial institutions are missing out on a huge opportunity if you want to just look at the commercial. Agriculture, agricultural efficiency, and the ability to some of our earlier conversations start to bring in less damaging inputs. You know, the ability of that person and their family to get access to those things is all being subjugated to the very same access or affordability or discrimination or exclusion issues that we see all over the world. Um, and so, and so that's where I think, you know, the onus is always on us to look, you know, in every country, um, where these, where these unfortunate, um, um, dynamics obtain, because generally, no matter what the socio-cultural dimension is, what they're doing is they're actually keeping us from opportunity and keeping us from greater efficiencies that can address particularly these, these environmental issues and social issues. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're, they're deeply connected and I think that is one of the pieces that as we start to realise that, oh, if we actually come at these things and think about how would we address that, it then creates this beautiful mutually reinforcing cycle that
1: Absolutely. Moving Absolutely.
0: those outcomes, we actually increase the financial s- sustainability of our actual operations of the core business, like that, they are connected. Which I think we so often yep. miss by, and, and we so often miss. And, and this is something that many people that you and I have worked with over decades now end up being the worst uh, contributors to because they come in and have these purest, naive conversations that it's all about what people should be doing and doing it because it's the right thing to do. And they actually lose that audience because they have failed to, to point out that this is a, a Deeply nuanced and complex uh, conversation that is far more than just doing good from that selfless way. And then leading on from that, if you think about the businesses themselves, whether they're a family business or a small and medium enterprise, anywhere in the world, that is thinking about this shift to start to take more responsibility for their actual operations and for the flow on impacts of that. What are some of the sort of predictions or things that you would say are changes that are coming that they need to be conscious and aware of?
1: To be honest with you, The least interesting and most mundane bit of the answer, um, um, but an important one is, you know, this is coming and more and more you're going to find yourself excluded. Um, Depending on what market you're in, you know, sooner or later, it's going to get tougher. Um, I'm going to jump in there.
0: Can you, when you say this is coming, are you talking about the, the broader aspects of being able to account for the environmental social governance kind of pieces or what is this?
1: What this is the juggernaut of what you've just mentioned, or it could be on the reporting side, or it could be on the sort of no, you know I mean, some very important things in there. You know, you no, know you can't dump this in the river anymore. You know, it's to, to greater or lesser extent it's it, you know, that 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 juggernaut is coming down the motorway very, very fast, which which is broadly a good thing. Um but I think that um I think that again, you know, um from the business's perspective, um to the extent that we can help foster greater awareness, and this is with absolutely no judgment intended, of the range of responses to these shifts that are that are possible. So again, and I really want to hammer on this point of no judgment, you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with a business that as a result of these dynamic shifts, there's you know what, we used to, you know, we used to use this much plastic and we used to emit this much carbon or whatever, we've changed that and now we don't. And that's absolutely fine, all the way through to, this to me is just, you know, far more interesting, um, businesses that either begin to see opportunity in or see new opportunities within, um, how they engage with their broader stakeholder community, suppliers, producers, et cetera, and say, you know, what they're making, and who it's available to, you know, that sort of thing as a, you know, so... There's the exciting sort of opportunity bit, if you like. And then there's the probably less exciting, more kind of like school mistress type of, you know, this is, you know, you're going to have to do this homework, whether you like it or not. Both are, both are essential. Um, but I think, you know, one of the themes that's underlined our conversation is that we need to give them the tools and then often in many cases, make the finance available. We can have a whole discussion about where that comes from and pay for it, but make the finance available to, to make those changes. If we are then gonna shout and scream about the fact that, you know, unless we make these changes, the polar bears are gonna die and we you know, we're all gonna die. You know, we can't have that dramatic bit without giving people the tools to do what they need to do. And that's that's no more urgent than it is in the in the emerging markets. And and you know, just to finish off, I mean that's where um you know I, w- I would encourage everyone to engage very very deeply with what the uh, prime minister rob Adels is talking about me and motley with her bridgehead agenda or you know the small island developing states and this is this is close to your heart and and, and given where where australia sits you know, the pacific region you know if, if you just take the environmental side by and large this is not a this is not a problem or a crisis of their making. um you know and so and so we have got to make the finance available to them irrespective of whatever wrongs or rights may have been done in the past in all sorts of areas, by them to them etc they need ha- you know they need they need finance now so so um yeah it's 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 we've got a you know it's the it's, it's the action and the systems and the and, and the products and the finance that make these broader often very emotive conversations we're having possible at the granular level that I think we need to get to next
0: yeah and i think As people are thinking about these big topics that we've explored today, I think that aspect of, of reminding yourself that we're framing this in a big system, but that what we're asking you to do is then drill that down to the pieces that you actually have some influence and control over. Because otherwise it is all too overwhelming and we will stay in situations where we'll say, well, that's nice, but until there is an external investor or funder who wants to pay for this, I'm not going to prioritize it. Or, you know, there's always an excuse for why we can't do something. So what I don't want people to do is to take the hugeness of this conversation and then feel overwhelmed and do nothing. But remember that it is context that can now inform your decisions and actually set you up to run your business better moving forward. And part of the piece, Noah, that you've sort of just explained to us that I think is really useful is that if we think about how we might want to begin that journey, there are the components that really are about external pressures, the reacting or responding to the compliance and regulation that, that is coming at us. And that can sit simply in that category of beginning by assessing what you're currently doing and working towards the avoid harm category. But the piece that I think both Nora and I are really hoping people are catching onto is that the opportunities, the pieces that will bring innovation, that will open up new markets and new ways to operate, that will genuinely position you to have that competitive advantage only come when you move beyond that surface level ticking of a box and you really shift into thinking differently about all of the ways that you're running your business about whose position you take into account when you design something or when you uh, produce a new product and so my hope is that as people listen to this and reflect on it, that part of what can become exciting is this genuinely moving away from a fear-based reaction to risk and into a genuine movement towards innovation and opportunity. Thank you so much, Noah. I really uh, appreciate
1: it. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed it.
0: It's great, great to have such a, an international view. Again, I think so often the examples we hear and the voices uh, that are the loudest are not representative of what's happening in the world. So I'm really thankful for your time. Pleasure, pleasure, absolute
1: pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to both Success and Integrity with Bessie Graham. If you found what I shared today valuable or you think that it would be good for a fellow business leader to listen to, then please share the episode with someone you know. Another way to help the podcast is to provide a rating and written review on your podcast app of choice. The written review is important because it helps others learn more about what we're trying to achieve. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me at any time on LinkedIn, YouTube or Instagram just by searching Bessie Graham. Or you can go to bessiegraham.com. I'm Bessie Graham, and remember, you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life.